Sentire Media. Hello everyone. You're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 81, the last stand of the House of Stauffen. In the last episode, we saw Charles of Anjou, brother of King Louis IX, come onto the scene upon invitation by the Pope to defeat Manfredi of Sicily, son of Frederick II, at the Battle of Benevento. And Charles was crowned king of the Kingdom of Sicily, which also included a good part of southern Italy, south of Rome. In my desire to see poor Manfredi to his heroic end last time, I may have made it seem all a bit too quick and convenient. In truth, Charles of Anjou hadn't just received a delegation or letter from the Pope one day asking him to pop down and take over the Kingdom of Sicily and answered, yeah, why not, I've got nothing to do this weekend. He had been working away at getting into Italy for a while. Starting from what he had just next door to France, i.e. the area of Piedmont, where he was extending his influence by seeking alliances with local lords and cities. Also, interestingly, he had managed to get himself elected as a senator in Rome. Now, this didn't mean the same thing as being a senator at the time of the ancient Roman Republic, but it had become a little more important with the start of the communal movement, since the Senate was involved in the management of the city. During his time in Italy, he would be re-elected various times to the Senate. As we did mention last time, the process of Charles being invited to take the throne of Sicily, and then actually coming and doing it, was a long process known as the Negotium Siciliae, the negotiation of Sicily, between the Pope and Charles. Now, you would think that it would be pretty easy. In the end, they had the same exact objective, i.e. for Charles to come down, get rid of Manfredi, and become King of Sicily. The problem arose when it came to what would happen next. You see, as always, the papacy was dead set on avoiding any attempt by anyone uniting the Italian peninsula under a single authority. Unless, of course, that single authority was the papacy itself, but the popes had by that time realised that they wouldn't be able to maintain such a dominion. Charles, on the other hand, like any feudal lord, was interested in expanding his dominions and was keen to have a good stretch once he took control of Sicily and see how far he could reach. This was particularly true of him, since he was much more of a military man than an administrator, and this would come back to kick him in the behind not too far down the road. There was one main point in the negotiation. You see, as interesting as it was for Charles to have a kingdom in Italy, he didn't actually need it. Whereas, if the Pope wanted to get rid of Manfredi, he didn't have much of a choice. In the end, Charles got not only the kingdom of Sicily, but he would have, as a vassal of the church of course, also part of the Papal States and Tuscany. Two things to remember here. At first, that the church felt that Tuscany was theirs, because the Countess Matilda of Canossa, who was also Margravine of Tuscany, had given it to them. 
And point two is that we must always remember that ruling over any part of Italy didn't mean in any way that you controlled all of it because you would always have to deal with local lords and communes and their shifting loyalties. For the moment, after the defeat and death of Manfredi at the Battle of Benevento in 1266, the loyalties were moving to the winner, Charles, with many Guelph cities siding with him and allowing or even asking him to send his representatives to govern their cities or acting as the governor of the city himself. However, you will remember that we left off last time wondering what the last male descendant of the House of Stauffen, Corradino, would do. He was the only remaining obstacle standing between Charles and his new kingdom. It was around Corradino that the Ghibelline forces of Italy now rallied, and the young man made his way down into the peninsula. One possible option would have been to sail down, thus leaving a convenient escape route. Instead, he opted to march down by land. Now, the decisive moment of the coming clash would be the Battle of Tagliacozzo, in the modern-day region of Abruzzo. It just so happens that I have a friend from Tagliacozzo. It also just so happens that the friend from Tagliacozzo is a podcaster. It also just so happens that said friend from Tagliacozzo, who is a podcaster, produces the Italian version of this podcast, Storia d'Italia. So, who better to tell you about this important battle from his hometown than Marco Capelli, host of Storia d'Italia. Over to you, Marco. Conradin was only 15 when he entered Italy in 1267 with just 1,000 knights and their retainers, many of them exiles from South Italy that had escaped the defeat of Manfredi. He reached Verona and spent the winter calling the support of the Italian states and nobility which supported the imperial faction, the Ghibellines, and was promptly excommunicated by the Pope in the family tradition. In spring, he traveled to the staunchly Ghibelline Pisa, and from there he marched across Tuscany to Viterbo, where he marched under the windows of the Pope, since he was fighting against the people of his city, Rome. Corradin reached the Eternal City, and was welcomed by the people and the commune. Some Roman forces even joined the expedition. In the south, Sicily rebelled against the Angevins, and the same did Lucera, the home of the last Muslims of Italy. Lucera had been promptly put under siege by the Angevins. A few Muslims managed to reach Conradin and warned him about the siege. Conradin decided to try to reach Apulia, not through Naples, the easiest way, but through the Via Valeria the old Roman road which connected Rome with the Adriatic, passing through the mountains of Abruzzo. However, King Charles was warned and marched his army towards the mountains as well. They would meet on a small plain near the town of Tagliacozzo, Maibor Place. Now, this being Italy, if you ask someone from the nearest village, Scurcola Marsicana, They will say, of course, that the entire battle was fought next to their town, and they staunchly refused to call it the Battle of Tagliacozzo. 
Just don't say any of this in the vicinity of someone from Tagliacozzo, if you care about your life. The Imperial forces, formed by Spanish, Italian and German knights, deployed in three divisions just across a small river, the Imele. The first was commanded by the Infant of Castille, Henry, which had actually supported Charles, but in his opinion had not been compensated enough by Charles, and so went over to Conradin when he invaded, also considering that he was his cousin. The second division was led by the Italian noble Galvano Lancia, maybe the brother of Bianca Lancia, the lover of Frederick II. Finally, the third division was led by Conradin himself. Facing them, there were two divisions of French and Southern Italian knights, led by the king himself, Charles of Anjou. The Imperials seemed to have a clear numerical advantage, about 4,500 knights against 3,000. The Imperials charged, and the Angevins fought bravely, but ultimately the king himself fell and was killed. The Angevins routed, and the Imperial forces scattered to kill them and take possession of their camp. It was not to be. Seemingly from nowhere, about 1,000 knights emerged from the nearby hills, crashing into the rear of the scattered Imperial forces, while the Angevins that had apparently fled turned to face the enemy. The new force was commanded by none other than King Charles himself, apparently coming back from the land of the dead. Lex explained this surprise by turning back the clock. The entire battle was a trap, apparently suggested by the veteran of the Crusades, Elard de Valerie, a trusted aide of King Charles, who had fought in the Holy Land. The old knight had hidden in the hills the most formidable unit of the Angevin army and sent the rest to face Conradin. These forces were not in fact led by King Charles, but his trusted lieutenant, Henry of Cousins, who donned the armor of the king and was taken for him. When he fell, and some believe he gave the life knowingly, the trap was sprung. Going back to the battle, the Imperial forces were taken completely by surprise thanks to this tactic, which at the time was considered dishonorable. They fought bravely, but eventually they were overcome, being mauled by the Angevins. Charles had a special retribution for the Romans that had fought for Conradin. They were all executed. Conradin managed to escape the slaughter and fled to Rome then abandoned the city and reached a castle on the Roman coast, near Nettuno, host of the powerful Frangipane family. The Frangipane, however, betrayed him to the emissaries of Charles of Anjou, and Corradin was taken prisoner. He was executed by decapitation in what is today Piazza Mercato, in Naples. Of him, everybody said that he was handsome, had a good heart, and was very brave. He was only 16. I may be biased, but I believe this battle to be one of the most pivotal fought on Italian soil. The Battle of Tagliacozzo ended the Onestafen dynasty, and with them, the strong imperial kingdom of Germany. Afterwards, for decades, the noble of Germany will fight about whom to elevate to the kingship in a series of weak kings, 
there won't be an emperor until 1312, and in 1356 the Golden Bull will codify that the German Reich will remain an elective monarchy, for the happiness of the future players of Europa Universalis. In Italy, the Battle of Tagliacozzo was the ultimate defeat of the Ghibellines. Yes, they will keep fighting the Guelphs, but deprived of the support from Germany, their cause was doomed. At the same time, the German vacuum in Italy will attract the French, and the Popes will come to regret their fight against the Honesthaufen. In a few decades, the papacy will be deported to Avignon to be so very close to their French masters, uh, pardon, sponsors. All this, of course, reverberated in that masterpiece of the 14th century, the Divine Comedy of Dante. In a few verses, Dante says, E là da Tagliacozzo, ove senz'arme vinse il vecchio alardo. And there, from Tagliacozzo, where the older are the Valeri, won his battle without honor and valor of arms. Dante really hated Charles of Anjou. Thanks very much for that, Marco. So, Dante could hate Charles of Anjou as much as he wanted, but now the king could finally settle down to govern his new kingdom. Next time, we'll see how he got on. If you would like to practice your Italian listening a little bit, I really strongly recommend that you head over and listen to more of Marco's work. You can go to his website, italiastoria.com, or catch his podcast on all podcast apps. I assure you, the man is a walking, talking encyclopedia of Italian history, only more interesting. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. In particular, my Patreon supporters, the Matilde di Canossa and Giuseppe Mazzini level, Aaron W, Benjamin, Deborah S, Eric R, Lorenzo, Maddie, Mattia, Paul A, Scott, Thomas and YR, the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Anthony G, Brandon S, Silane, Daniel C, Dean V, Eric W, Gordon Z, Greg, Ignazio, Caitlin, Kevin, Marxist Lelinist Sicilian, Reactionary Venetian, Roberta D, Rodney N, Scott L, Shelby and Stephen, and the Tippy Top, Maria Montessori and Dante Ligieri, Sen, Paolo, Lisa K, JW and Andrew M. Remember, you can get in touch, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, you can click through to our social media. We are on Twitter and Facebook. And if you're feeling really generous, you can support the show via PayPal or become a patron and have access to extra content. We now have News Cappuccino, The Sketches, and In the Time It Takes, three features all on Patreon as well as the occasional video. Thanks very much to everyone for listening, and until next time, arrivederci.
So, Charles, let's see if we can get this ball rolling, shall we? Right. So, you get rid of Manfredi and I'll make you king of Sicily. And? Uh, and what? What else? What do you mean? Isn't a whole kingdom enough? Well, it's, it's just the bottom bit. It's all the bumpy mountains. Well, what else do you want? What about uh, Tuscany? All of it? Yeah, we'll uh, say it is yours, um, but I will uh, borrow it. I suppose. And uh, the papal states, please. What? Those really are mine. I'll just borrow it. Um, think of all the trouble they cause you anyway. Yes, I suppose they are, Ben, but that's it no more. Well, if that is the way you feel about it, you can go and give it to one of the other European princes knocking down your door. Okay, okay, don't get all huffy about it. What else do you want? What about my uh, title? What about it? How about... Your supreme, absolute, awesomeness, majesty. That sounds dumb. You sound dumb. <laughs> Five hours later. So, we got all down on paper. Let's just double check. I underside his uttermost sexy awesomeness... Charles of Anjou, hereafter referred to as Charlie, do hereby undertake to engage Manfredi of Sicily in battle and to eliminate him from the Italian peninsula. In exchange, Charlie will receive the kingdom of Sicily, the march of Tuscany, the papal states as a vile soul of the most holy church. He will furthermore be known <coughs> during the week his uttermost sexy awesomeness, majesty will his most pleasurable coolness at the weekend and on religious holidays. Yes, yes, very good so far. He will receive at least five castles, one of which with a nice view of the sea, but not too windy, possibly with sudden-facing windows. Yes, yes, I don't want to be too demanding. Yes, another of which must have lovely garden with an ornate and intricate shrubbery. He will then <coughs> also receive a hundred snowy white mares, at least two of which he will call Gladys, and one hundred black stallions. Then twenty-four green horses. If as pointed out by... Go on, read it all. As pointed out by Party Popa, 
bowling pubs, smelly fuck. There are no such things as green horses. He will receive twenty-five white white ones painted green. Finally, five golden wings, four calling birds, three Italian hens, turtle doves, and a turnip tree. Now, please, please, can we sign it this and get on with it? Well, what now? Where do we stand on hats? Sentire media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.